Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. We have a wonderful show and interview today with Francesca Cartier-Brickell. Francesca Cartier-Brickell is a member of the Cartier dynasty and is author of the new book, The Cartiers, The Untold Story of the Family Behind the Jewelry Empire. Francesca Cartier-Brickell will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates, and you'll find out more in our show notes today. We are talking with Francesca Cartier-Brickell today, and we'll learn about the wondrous and eventful past of the Cartier family. The Cartier story unfolds against the backdrop of world events and happenings that takes place during time and is amazing in context. You will love this interview. In our Smithsonian Associates interview series today, we will be talking with Francesca Cartier-Brickell, and you'll get a glimpse into the Cartier business, the personal family innovation, the fabulously wealthy, often royal clients, as well as the wildly fascinating story of the Cartiers, which all begins with Francesca Cartier-Brickell discovering an old, hidden trunk. Finding that trunk of letters and recording my grandfather's memoirs were life-defining moments for me, but in many ways they were just the beginning. For though I never doubted his version of events, I do recognise that no one's memory of the past is all-encompassing. Even the letters in the trunk just tell part of the story. So I've made every effort to seek out sources from all over the world in order to form, as best I can, a comprehensive view of the course of events. As I have turned over more stones, uncovering unexpected facts along the way, I have found myself constantly revising my view of the history and seeking out leads I had never considered. I've tracked down illuminating archives hidden in far-flung far pockets of the world, from St. Louis to Tokyo. I've visited addresses deciphered from spidery handwriting on faded envelopes in London, Paris and New York, imagining what it must have been like to live in those grand old buildings in a different era. I've retraced my great-grandfather's footsteps through eastern lands, I've visited the same sapphire mines, slept in the same buildings, walked barefoot through the same temples, and met descendants of those he knew, from Indian Maharajas and Persian Gulf pearl sheiks to Sri Lankan gem dealers and American heiresses. I spent hours searching for hundred-year-old birth, death and marriage certificates and studying them closely for clues into the lives of those long gone. And I have been lucky enough to meet some truly incredible people from the 90-year-old Parisian saleswoman who invited me to lunch and generously shared her remarkable stories, to the modest designer in London who treated me to Victoria sponge cake and regaled me with tales of eccentric client requests and the most fabulous royal jewels. Sadly, my grandfather passed away a few years ago. Talking to him about the past had brought us very close over his final years, and I was devastated by his death. It took me a long time to be able to listen to the tapes I had recorded with him. I thought it would be strange hearing his voice again after he was gone. But it's been surprisingly comforting, as if he's still here on this journey with me. I think of him often, when one of the jewels he told me about pops up in an auction. When I read the letters he passed down to me, or catch sight of that trunk in my house. And when the light in the south of France turns that gentle pink just before sunset. Before my grandfather passed away, more than a hundred years after the three Cartier brothers made a promise to one another to build the world's leading jewellery firm, I made him a promise to tell the story of the Cartier family as accurately as I could. 
This book is my attempt to honor that promise. That, of course, is our guest today, Francesca Cartier-Brickell, reading from her new book, The Cartiers, The Untold Story of the Family Behind the Jewelry Empire. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate, Francesca Cartier-Brickell. Francesca Cartier-Brickell, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the reading. This is just a, a wonderful uh, subject that we're going to talk about. Of course, we're going to get into detail about your wonderful book, The Cartiers, The Untold Story of the Family Behind the Jewelry Empire. You'll be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. I wonder if you'd just tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, and, and in particular, tell us how you're going to use Zoom to engage our audience. We're all on Zoom these days, and uh, I think there's going to be some wonderful use of Zoom by you, but but tell us all about this, please. Yeah, indeed. We are all on Zoom now, having not <laughs> known what the word meant a few years ago. Um and yes, well, I actually used Zoom a lot during lockdown because my book was launched just before the pandemic. And I managed to squeeze in a few live events, um, one in Washington, actually, at Hillwood. I did a, a book launch there. Um, but but then the pandemic put pause to all that. And obviously, we were all stuck at home. And I started to use Zoom as a way to to reach people and share the story. And every time I did a Zoom, I tried to do it with a different expert I'd met along my journey. Um I mentioned in that in that um, introduction to my book that I just read a bit about some of the incredible people I met during these 10 years of research and writing my book. And when I did a Zoom with with someone, the idea was that I could I could do a talk with someone who I wouldn't normally have the opportunity to do that with because this other person could be based in, for example, India or in America. It didn't matter where they were based. We could come together on Zoom and I could also show a presentation filled with these glorious colorful images, um, which everyone obviously can look at on their own screens. And it worked really well. So I did one with one of the Maharajas I'd known in India. I did one with, for example, the curator of Marjorie Mayweather Post's collection from Hillwood Estate Museum and Gardens, because she had a fabulous collection of Cartier jewels. I did one with um, the deputy surveyor of the Queen of England's works of art. We did that all about the British royal jewels. Um, and so basically, I was able to really dive into different aspects of the story with different experts. And this one is going to be with Kieran McCarthy. And he was he, he he's the director at Wartsky, an antique jewelry store in London, which really specializes in Fabergé. And he's also the co-curator of the exhibition that's been on at the V&A in London for the last few months, Fabergé in London. Um and it's, this, I, this is a really exciting topic because I've known Cart um, Kieran for many years and I shared lots of conversations with him about specifically about Fabergé in London and Cartier in London, because obviously Cartier started out French, Fabergé in Russia. But where did both firms choose to have their second store? It was London. And it was at exactly the same time, the early 20th century, Edwardian Britain. And funny enough, they chose to have stores, not just in the same area of London, Mayfair, but on the same street and just one store away from each other. And so we thought this would be a great idea for a webinar because you have these two foreign firms, they said, one French, one Russian, but battling out for the best clients in the world in Britain. Um, and this was the time when the royal family, the British royal family, would literally walk into the store and buy their jewels. Um, so it was a very fun story to to explore and to look at some of the, the clients of that time who 
who were buying from both Fabergé and Cartier, people like um, so Ernest Keppel, who Kieran described as the real Jeff Bezos of the day, or um, Lady Greville, who oh, what is, what is Cecil Beaton described her as a greedy old toad, but she was close to the royal family and left the Queen much of her royal jewellery. And in fact, even the Queen today and many of members of the royal family are seen wearing her jewels today because she, she left them to the royal family in a big bequest. So it was just fun to explore these different firms and the, the talk that we're doing is, is rivals on Bond Street and it's really about them battling it out for, for supremacy in that period. And of course, you know, in some ways Cartier would win out because Fabergé um in you know wouldn't survive really the the in after the Russian Revolution. Whereas Cartier was much more diversified at that time and would would obviously keep going post post revolution, post World War One. But we explore all that in the story and there's full of fantastic images as you can imagine. Um, of all those Cartier and Fabergé pieces really up close on the screen. So, yeah, hope hope you can enjoy, join and, and that you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I, I will be there. And I know many in our audience will just uh, learn so much, enjoy this so much. It is a wonderful story. The book is is excellent. It it has a, a business sense to it, too, I found. I, I perhaps read into that a little bit, and I, I wanted to ask you about that in just a moment. But first, I want to talk to you about the kind of the the family element here because that's wonderful too this is a at its heart a, a family story and i can only imagine uh, francesca what it might have been like to have grown up a cartier but as i was reading more about you i found out that your upbringing your personal upbringing was perhaps more humble more simple and not as um Cote d'Azur or perhaps uh, Monaco-esque, as as many might imagine. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about your parents and growing up in Surrey in England and uh, maybe even what your friends thought about your your Cartier heritage. Sure. Well, it's funny because it's not something I ever thought about really growing up. My grandfather, first of all, was incredibly modest um and and very discreet and my family was as well and he'd also just sold the business out the family just before I was born um so it wasn't in the family anymore and Cartier was on my mum's side so she passed the name down to us so it was in my passport it was in my sibling's passport we we knew that but there was a kind of disconnect when you saw the name in your passport and you saw Cartier in magazine articles or in airport stores um because yeah, I'd, I I hadn't been brought up with with the business really, and um, but what I was brought up with was was my um, was a connection with my grandfather really, and he retired to the south of France, um, just yeah just before I was born. So I spent every summer holiday in the south of France with him, um, or the whole family did, and we just I, I, I to me he was just a wonderful loving grandfather, you know. Um, but yes, I like. People do kind of assume it's all tiaras in the pool. <laughs> and they, right, I mean, right. most of my friends didn't even know I was connected to the Cartier. Even when I wrote the book and I invited people to the book launch, people were people were surprised because it wasn't something I'd we, we talked about growing up. Yeah, and I read that this took you. This was ten years of your life doing doing this, uh, an entire lifetime, of course, of of family relations and exposure to this. But but ten years doing this research. How did you become interested in doing it in, in the first place? Well, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because I think when you grow up hearing stories from your grandfather, they're just grandpa's stories and you don't really realize how special they are. And it really took my 
well, now my husband, he was my boyfriend at the time, when he came to France with us one summer, and he was sitting around the lunch table with us, and Grandpa was telling another story about his father and his trips to India, or Uncle Pierre and Uncle Louis, and all these people who kind of feature in the books about Cartier, but in a rather two-dimensional sense uh, in relation to the jewels rather than as real people. And my husband was just like, these stories are incredible. And, you know, your family's just listening to them. And, um, and but, you know, you've got to be writing them down. You've got to be preserving this, you know, even if it's just for your family for the next generation. But, you know, other people too. And he lost um, his grandparents on both sides. So part of it was just thinking that it was incredible to have this insight into a different time but especially an insight like this that spanned so much incredible social history because if you think about it the history of of jewelry of a really high you know luxury jewelry is a history of some of the real movers and shakers in the world because the jewelry moves hands um as as kind of power shifts in the world so you know i'd mentioned before about the russian revolution and fabergé not really surviving that but you know, before the Russian Revolution, some of the wealthiest people in the world, some of Cartier's best clients, were in were in Russia, and the Cartiers would go to Saint Petersburg to their palaces to visit them. And then, of course, in the Russian Revolution, these jewels were smuggled out, and Cartier would buy them back and then sell them to American heiresses. And then, in the Great Depression, the American heiresses would be forced to sell them, and they'd make their way to London or to India, where they weren't affected by the Depression in the same way. And you kind of so these stories that grandpa were telling was a kind of story of, of the world, really. Um, but yeah, I have my husband really to thank for, for making me <laughs> be a bit, you know, rather than just relying on grandpa's anecdotes to, to ask a few more targeted questions to really understand the timeline more and, and the people more. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we thank your husband for all this, too, because it, it is just a, a wonderful story. It, well, uh, you know, 10 years of, of history talking to um all of these uh, uh, ancestors all throughout the world, um, visiting different countries, walking in the footsteps of, of, uh, of these family members. How did the experience impact you as a person? Well, it's been incredible because it started off – well, should I explain a bit how I discovered this trunk of letters, actually, because that might give a bit of background. Please. Yeah. Yeah, please. Explain. So – as I said, I've been hearing anecdotes about my my grandfather. I mean, from sorry, I heard family anecdotes from my grandfather growing up about different family members. But as I said, they were largely anecdotes. And then something happened on his 90th birthday that changed everything. So um, on my grandfather's 90th birthday, we were all in the south of France celebrating with him. It was a glorious day in, in the end of July. We were all having a breakfast on the terrace. And grandpa was the most... <laughs> incredibly generous man. He was someone who always liked to give presents on his birthday rather than receive them, which as children had just, you know, bowled us over. We couldn't believe someone would rather give a present than receive it. Um, (laughs) When we were younger, it had been, you know, a bike one year for us and our cousins to share or a sand pit. But this year we were older and he said, look, I've been saving a special bottle of champagne for us all to enjoy together. And it's down in the cellar. And he asked me to go and fetch it for him. So down I went and I was looking around for the champagne. I just couldn't find it. And grandpa, by the way, kept everything, didn't throw anything away. So the cellar was filled with everything from old copies of Horse and Hound magazine. He loved horses to, I mean, I can't explain, old brochures for everything. I mean, he never threw anything away. Old newspapers. Um, So I couldn't find the wine, but saw lots of other things. And then just as I was leaving in the corner, oh, I couldn't find the champagne or any wine. In fact, in the corner, just as I was leaving, I saw an 
an old trunk on the floor. And I thought, well, maybe it's in there because he did say it's in the cellar. And I moved everything off the top of the trunk and slowly opened it. And inside I was confronted with hundreds of letters, um, which was the most incredible moment because each of these, there were kind of bundles, each letter, there were bundles of letters and they were each, um, they'd each been organized into, as I say, separate bundles tied with a colored ribbon and a little note on the top saying what they referred to. So there might be one bundle saying World War One letters or one bundle saying letters from Pierre in 1940s. Um, and these, these letters were, as I would soon find out, they told the story of, of the family and of the firm. They stretched back 150 years right to the beginning. The firm was founded in 1847. And you really saw the development of, yeah, of, of this business and of the dreams of the people. And, and it's something, it's incredible to actually read letters because up until then, my ancestors had been black and white photographs in grandpa's house, really. It's peppered with little anecdotes from my grandfather. But they'd been pretty much two-dimensional characters. And then, but reading a letter from them, it brings them to life. You you get a sense of their sense of humor. You understand what their fears are, what their dreams are, um, who they love. And it was just so inspiring. And it was really that discovery that inspired me to to write the book. And um, luckily, my grandfather was still alive. So I was able to share these letters with with him. He'd actually thought they'd been lost. When he moved to France, so much was lost. And he thought they, he'd assumed they'd been lost. So he was thrilled to see them again. And we spent that whole summer going through that trunk. And he would read them so slowly and just savor, you know, reading his father's handwriting, um, his father's voice again, you know, hearing his father's voice effectively again, gave him so much joy. Um, and we would talk about them and he would fill in the gaps. And then I spent the next 10 years traveling all over because I thought, you know, where, while I have those letters from the family, I really want to have the perspective of other people involved in the firm as well. And I traveled all over trying to track down those who had worked for Cartier, or in many cases where they passed away, their descendants. And before you asked me what I discovered, and, and one of the things that was so special and the way it changed me was realizing how much these people had thought of Cartier as an extended family. And, you know, they loved it. It wasn't just a job, it was their life. And as a result, their descendants would welcome me into their homes all over the world and treat me as a family member. And I now feel like I've got this huge extended family, which is just so wonderful. And it's made me see, see, that, see the world in a different light and really appreciate the craftsmanship. Because before this, I didn't work in jewelry, I actually worked in finance. And, and um, I looked, looked and analyzed companies for a living. And here I, I, I really started to understand the, the pride and the skill involved in making these pieces and the many hours and hours, weeks and months to make just a single piece and how each piece is unique. And, you know, they go for records at auction, but, but you really understand why when you speak to these people. Um, and that was so special to me to see that the, the care and the love they'd had for, for the work and for their firm and for, for my family. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. 
Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Francesca Cartier-Briquel. Francesca Cartier-Briquel is author of the new book, The Cartier's The Untold Story of the Family Behind the Jewelry Empire. Francesca Cartier-Briquel will be at the Smithsonian Associates coming up. Check our show notes for information about the Smithsonian Associates presentation, as well as Francesca's book. It is excellent, Francesca. We really appreciate your time. Thanks again for reading. What did you learn about the Cartier clients? Because I, I... as I kind of mentioned earlier, I, I found this to be, you know, a business book, too, you know, about the, the hard, hard, hard work it took to building uh, Cartier from scratch to this global brand, clients uh, visiting uh, customers as opposed to always having the customers go into a store. I know, I know that Cartier had stores, certainly the London store. It it must have you know as a business person uh, with a background in finance, it it seems to be a good you know almost reference book about business too. Yes, I well I mean I definitely I think I approached it like that. I approached the I wrote the book with a, as I said I worked in finance before. I was an analyst, um, financial analyst. So I looked at companies for a living and I tried to work out if their prices would go up or down effectively. So and in doing that, I looked I learned to look at. What what were the you know the strong points in a company? What was the competition like? What what are the potential hurdles along the way? And when I looked at the Cartiers in terms of the, the business side, I was asking myself two main questions. I was asking myself, the first one was, okay, it's all very well to have a business to have a dream. So the three Cartier brothers had a dream, and their dream was to build their grandfather's small Parisian shop into the leading jewelry firm in the world. Now, it's normal to have a lofty dream. Lots of kids have that. But they actually succeeded. And not only did they succeed, but they kept it afloat through revolution, through war, through the Great Depression, through another world war, you know, through a period of austerity. I mean, how did they do that? Um, And so that was one of my questions. How did they fulfill their dream and how did they keep it alive? And the other question I had was, why did they sell it? Why did it come out of the family in the end? So I kind of wrote the, the book with those questions in mind. And But you're right, in terms of the business practices, there are certain things that my grandfather told me, like um, the, the way that one of the family mottos, which comes down from actually the founder, Louis-Francois Cartier, right at the very beginning, I have a great letter from him written to his son in the 1870s. And he says to his son, be very kind. To everyone you meet, be very kind. And I really felt that this is a kind of Cartier motto that the Cartiers felt very strongly and that they felt that their salesmen should should do the same thing and they should treat every client who walked into the door with ultimate respect. Um, and in fact, there's a wonderful story about Pierre. So Pierre was my grandfather's uncle, Uncle Pierre. He was a middle brother. And Pierre was in um, Cartier Paris in the early 20th century. And it was a pouring wet day. And there was this lady who walked into Cartier Paris absolutely bedraggled with the rain. And all his um, salesmen in Cartier Paris ignored her because they didn't think she she looked like she was going to spend any money. So no money meant no commission for them. 
And he was absolutely furious because this was the opposite to how he'd been brought up, this idea of being very kind and treating everyone with respect. So he went straight over to her and offered his help and started talking. And this was a woman, Elma Rumsey, turned out to be an American heiress that he would end up marrying, <laughs> um, and which was a lovely little story. But these, these little points about be very kind, and you're right, in terms of salesmen traveling to clients. I mean, my great-grandfather went all the way to India. You know, in some cases, he had to travel on a donkey. In some cases, the car he was traveling in would have to be taken apart. He had to go and see the king of Nepal at some stage. They had to go over the, over the Himalayas. And the Rolls Royce they were in couldn't drive over the Himalayas. So it was literally taken apart. And you had different people carrying a door, a steering wheel, <laughs> a bonnet. And they carried it all the way over the Himalayas and then put it back together again when they got to the other side and drove off to see the king. And you hear the extents they went to, to to meet these clients on their home grounds. And it's just phenomenal. And no wonder, in a way, they inspired such loyalty. <laughs> I wonder if you'd tell us uh, just briefly about each of the brothers, because they all had their own respective business talents and qualities, and that led to the success of the business. It was really this breadth, this depth of their abilities that did that. And so maybe tell us a little bit about each one. It's funny. It was almost like a fairy tale mix of talent they had, and it was like that. So it's like the elder brother, Louis, he was this creative genius, and he was the one who you know, it was said to come up with the idea of the wristwatch for men before anyone else. He was came up with the idea of platinum. So he platinum at that time wasn't a precious metal. People would use gold and silver in their jewels. But he saw it underneath a, a railway carriage and he saw this bright, shiny metal that looked very strong. And he thought, well, why don't we experiment with that in jewelry? And and lo and behold, they started make, using platinum as a mount for their diamond tiaras. Um, and it didn't oxidize or go dark in the same way that silver did. And it was lighter than gold and you could have a much smaller amount. So the diamonds were much more obvious. And, you know, lo and behold, we have a revolution in, in, in jewelry, as he as he described it. Um, platinum becomes a precious metal. So that was Louis, very creative in all ways. He actually didn't do well at school because he was always daydreaming. But that's the whole point about Louis. He didn't follow the crowd. Um Pierre, the middle brother, not like Louis at all, very um, serious, very sensible, a brilliant businessman. He's the one who understood the idea of globalization, I think, before globalization was even a word. He's the one who, he opened the branch in London. He opened the branch in New York and Fifth Avenue. He he bought the, the headquarters in New York, where Cartier still is today on Fifth Avenue, in exchange for a double-stranded pearl necklace. He He's the one who first went to Russia. He was brilliant with understanding clients and how to speak to clients. And it was said that he would never tell a client, oh, you, this, this pearl necklace has got this number of pearls and they're this color and they're this size. Instead, he would describe the pearl necklace to a, a painting, you know, a pre-Raphaelite um, painting or something. And he would kind of conjure up these images or he famously sold the cursed hope diamond to Evelyn McLean. And, you know, who would buy a big blue cursed diamond? But he, he cleverly did it. He lent it to her overnight and he knew that that she would find it very hard to give it back after having had it for a night on her bedside table. And sure enough, she ended up wanting to keep it. Um, and meanwhile, Jack, the youngest brother, he's my great grandfather. He's the one who ended up in the London store. He was very gentle, modest man. He actually wanted to become a priest, um, a Catholic priest. And his brothers told him that his um, 
really his duty was to their fraternal trinity rather than the holy trinity. Um, and so he 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 ended up working for the for the firm, and he was brilliant with clients. I think they really trusted him. I I see this in the letters written to him and the um, condolence letters on his death, the outpouring of grief and the people from craftsmen to designers to very well-known clients who just adored him. But of the three, he was also the gemstone expert. So he's the one who would travel to India and he would be one to recognize the best ruby, the best emerald, the best sapphire. He would travel to the Persian Gulf and negotiate with the pearl sheiks. He would sit on the pearl fishing boat and and, and wait while the divers went down there. So he was a real gem expert. And so they had this m- magical, almost fairy tale mix of talents, as I said. But I think what gra- Grandpa said was really special was that they were so close. So they had this mix of talent, but they shared it. They shared everything. They shared clients. They shared gems. They shared designs. They shared employees. Um, they wrote to each other all the time, thankfully, because these letters are incredible. Um and I think that's what was so magic about them. You know, of course, they had little spats now and again, sibling rivalry, but generally they adored each other. And apparently that was known in the industry. Everyone said, oh, you can't mess with the Cartier brothers. You know, they are so tight. They don't do anything for each other. I think it was a real pain, apparently, for my great grandmother, because basically whenever anyone, whenever one of the brothers called Jack, her husband, he would drop in a anything for them and the, the brothers were like this so I think their wives rather despaired <laughs> they would have to play second fiddle, fiddle. Um, but, but it made for a good a good powerful business definitely and a powerful story so I just have to ask you are you wearing Cartier as we speak today <laughs> yeah. I, well do you know what my grandfather designed my my engagement ring for me my husband found it and he designed it just on the back of an envelope so I'm wearing, that's a kind of true Cartier. It wasn't, <laughs> I didn't buy it from a Cartier store, but it was designed by a Cartier. And I'm wearing a Trinity ring, which I always wear, and um, and a watch, tank watch. So, yes. Well, congratulations, Francesca Cartier-Brickell. The, the book is wonderful. All the success in the world to you and uh, your family. Hope you're, you're well. We look forward to your presentation uh, coming up at Smithsonian Associates. Again, we're going to put information in our show notes today about Francesca Cartier-Brickell and her book, The Cartier's The Untold Story of the Family Behind the Jewelry Empire. Thanks so much for reading. Thanks for your generous time and uh, uh, be well. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing more from you at Smithsonian Associates. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Paul. It was really fun. My thanks to Francesca Cartier-Brickell. Francesca Cartier-Brickell will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up, and you'll find out more in our show notes today. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on the Not Old Better show on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, treat one another with kindness, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next week.